As Jesus wraps up the Sermon on the Mount, he throws down a challenge to us, to his disciples, to choose a way of life. Our choice is between the narrow and broad way. And our choice of the narrow or broad way will prove ourselves to be either genuine or false. He also warns us that false prophets will invariably come along to deceive us in an attempt to draw us away from the narrow gate and the narrow way. Finally, in the words of Bishop J.C. Ryle, Jesus closes his sermon by turning from, quote, false prophets to false professors, from unsound teachers to unsound hearers. The cold, hard reality that Jesus presents in these final verses of Matthew 7 is that false prophets are not the only danger facing us as kingdom citizens. Indeed, there is the danger of self-deception. And as such, Jesus expounds on the theme of self-deception and the kingdom citizen in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 27. Self-deception and the kingdom citizen, Matthew 7, 21 to 27. Now, the essence of all that Jesus reveals regarding kingdom citizens, regarding our character, conduct, and choices, is summed up in any word, obedience. Just one word, obedience. The obedient are poor in spirit, mournful, gentle, righteous, merciful, and peaceful. The obedient are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. They keep and teach God's law. Their righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees. It's not merely an outward ritual, it's an inward reality. The obedient guard their hearts from unjust anger, hate, and lust. They keep their oaths or non-resistance and love their enemy. The obedient do their praying, fasting, and giving privately. They invest in heavenly treasures. Instead of prioritizing their daily needs, the obedience prioritize the pursuit of God's kingdom and his righteousness. They judge righteously and without hypocrisy. Think about that list of things we just stated about the obedient. Are they evident in your life? If they are, praise God, but if not, be warned. You see, obedience is the mark of genuine disciples who walk the narrow way. But sadly, like the rich young ruler, there are many professing disciples who think they are obedient. However, just as Jesus revealed to the rich young ruler, they are self-deceived. Is that you? As Jesus reveals here in Matthew 7, 21 to 27, their self-deception is evidenced by their lack of obedience. And this lack of obedience will be seen in their confession of Jesus' lordship and their hearing of God's law. You see, the first evidence of self-deception is confession without obedience. Confession without obedience. Self-deception number one. Let's look at chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Again, self-deception number one, confession without obedience. Jesus draws the line in the sand and declares, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now what is the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of heaven is synonymous with the kingdom of God. And it refers to the sovereign rule of God over everything. 
Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven some 32 times, while the other gospel accounts use the phrase kingdom of God. Now, you must remember that because Matthew's original readers are Jewish, he reflects the Jewish practice of substituting the term heaven in place of God, as Jews would not dare speak God's name. Now, throughout this sermon, Jesus has made it clear that entrance into the kingdom of heaven is the eternal destiny of genuine disciples. However, he now clarifies that simply confessing Jesus as Lord does not guarantee that you are genuinely saved. Now, let's be clear. Let, let, let's state that confessing Jesus' lordship is critical to salvation. Make no mistake about that. Romans 10.9 declares that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Furthermore, 1 Corinthians 12.3 is clear. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Nonetheless, Jesus demonstrates that not all confessions are genuine. The genuineness of a confession is evidenced by obedience to God's law. According to Jesus, the only ones who will enter God's kingdom are those who confess him as Lord and, quote, do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, God's will is revealed in Leviticus 11.44 and again in 1 Peter 1.16. Be holy as I am holy. That is, believer, you and I are to conform ourselves to God's character. Are you doing that? 1 Peter 1.14-15 states, As obedient children, be like the Holy One who called you. Be holy yourselves also in all of your behavior. Is your behavior holy? Now, another aspect of God's character is love. 1 John 5, verse 3, reveals, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. See, believer, we conform to God's character of love by obeying his law. And in doing so, we will love God with all of our heart, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. You see, not obeying God's law demonstrates a lack of genuineness in your confession and implies that you do not truly possess the Holy Spirit. Listen carefully. At the moment of salvation, according to Ezekiel 36, 25 and 26, God cleanses you from all filthiness and gives you a new heart and places a new spirit within you. Yahweh then declares in chapter 36 of Ezekiel in verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Let's put it this way, friends. Because the Holy Spirit indwells believers, we live according to God's law and obey his authority. An individual who habitually disobeys God's law, we'll call this lawlessness, exhibits that the Holy Spirit is not present in their life, and therefore they are not saved. Now to prove his point, Jesus looks forward to the day of judgment. He says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Notice there, many will say. That term many, palus, refers back to Matthew 7, 13. The gate is wide, the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many, palus, who enter through it. Hence, the individuals in question are those on the broad way. They are self-deceived. They believe they are right with God, but 
they are on the wrong way. You see, on the day of judgment, the many will stand before Jesus and say, Lord, Lord. Now notice something here. First, their confession is orthodox. Referring to Jesus as Lord is to identify him as Yahweh. Remember the Greek term kurios, translated as Lord, was used in the Septuagint to translate Yahweh, the Hebrew name for God. Second, their confession is sincere. Now in Hebrew, the, ter- the doubling of a term was used to show zeal, devotion, or sincerity. Jesus' point is that orthodoxy and sincerity in one's confession does not guarantee its genuineness. Thus, in order to prove the genuineness of their confession, these individuals offer three proofs. That they offer three proofs underscores again the Jewish use of triads, that group of threes, as a common rhetorical strategy to establish the veracity of an argument. Also notice that in this triad, the phrase your name is invoked three times. In other words, in each of the proofs offered, the particular action was done in Jesus' name. And remember, in Semitic culture, the term name, Hanoma, expresses an individual's nature, character, or authority. Therefore, these individuals are claiming that what they did or what they said was in line with Jesus' character. And Jesus' point is that claiming your actions are Christ-like does not guarantee the genuineness of your confession. Now, we need to ask, what exactly did they say or do that made them think that their confession was genuine? First, they ask, did we not prophesy in your name? The term prophesy, phateo, means to tell forth God's message. Indeed, the primary function of a prophet in the Hebrew Scriptures was not to foretell things to come, but to tell forth God's will. Ergo, they preached and taught God's Word. However, Jesus' point is that preaching or teaching God's Word does not guarantee the genuineness of your confession. Second, they ask, Did we not in your name cast out demons? Third, they ask, Did we not in your name perform many miracles? Now, these two questions seemingly confirm the genuineness of their confession. In the Gospels, Jesus, the apostles, and disciples cast out demons and performed miracles as proof of the genuineness of their message and ministry. However, you must listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 and verse 24. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Folks, that statement alone proves that exorcisms and miracles are not proofs that one's confession is genuine. Now that brings us to an important question. What then is the proof of a confession's genuineness for which Jesus is looking? Well, the answer to that question is found in Jesus' reply. He says, Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus' command for them to depart is a quote from Psalm 6, verse 8. Now notice the verb declare, homologia, means to publicly confess. The many on the Broadway publicly confess that they know Jesus by name. But he, in turn, publicly confesses that he does not know their name. In other words, he declares that their name is not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. 
Revelation 20 verse 15 declares, If anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he is thrown into the lake of fire. Therefore Jesus commands, Depart from me. This is the pronouncement of judgment against them, which in turn cast them into the lake of fire. Now folks, if there is any doubt that their name is missing from the Lamb's book of life, and that their judgment is just, Jesus provides the charge against them. You who practice lawlessness. The verb practice, ergerzomai, is in the present tense, implying that they regularly and habitually engage in lawlessness. And lawlessness, anomia, refers to behaving in open defiance of God's law. And if anyone doubts the seriousness of lawlessness, consider that the Antichrist is referred to as the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2.3. Indeed, Paul proclaims in 2 Timothy 2.19, everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness, lawlessness. Therefore, their disobedience is proof that they are self-deceived and their confession is disingenuous. Friends, Jesus not only wants lip service, he wants life service. You know, it's interesting, their claims of preaching, purification, and phenomena were all verbal actions. Now, obviously, preaching's done verbally. However, the majority of purifications or exorcisms and phenomena or miracles performed in Scripture were done verbally. The person performing the exorcism would command the demon or demons to come out of the possessed person. As well, the one performing miracles would command the infirmed to be healed. Though the many confessed Jesus as their Lord with their lips, they never submitted to his lordship with their lives. You know, it's one thing to imitate Jesus' works. It's altogether something different to submit your life to his lordship by obeying his law. The point of these verses is simply this. An orthodox, sincere confession, as well as preaching purification and phenomena, are meaningless unless they are accompanied by obedience to God's law, motivated by submission to Jesus' lordship. You know, examine your life, friend. Examine your life. Are, are, are you obedient to God's law? Oh, well, I preach and teach God's word. Oh, I do this and I do that for the Lord. Yeah, that's fine. But are you obedient to his law? Are you submitting to his lordship? All that talk means nothing if you're not walking in his law. So self-deception one, confessing without obedience. The second evidence of self-deception or self-deception two is hearing without obedience in Matthew 7, 24 to 27. Matthew 7, 24 to 27. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears those words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, the rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Now notice here that Jesus begins with the term, therefore, which connects the next statement to the previous. 
Previously, Jesus contrasted what we say, i.e. confess, and do. Now he contrasts what we hear and do. In essence, Jesus is saying that self-deception is not only evidenced by confession without obedience, but also hearing without obedience. Now, in the second example of self-deception, there are two groups of hearing. First, in verse 24, there are those who hear these words of mine and acts on them. Second, in verse 26, there are those who hear these words of mine and do not act on them. Now, the verb hears, akuo, in both verses, implies the idea of listening intently for the purpose of acting upon what was heard. And so while everyone listened intently, not all acted upon what they heard. And the object of what was heard was these words of mine. The possessive pronoun mind is in the emphatic position. What that means is that Jesus is equating his words with the will of his Father, to which he mentioned back in verse 21. As stated, God's will is summed up in his commands. Therefore, Jesus' words are equal to the Father's commands. Now, how are Jesus' words equal to the Father's commands? In John 12, 49, Jesus states, I did not speak of my, on my own initiative, but my Father himself, who sent me, has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. That is, Jesus only speaks what the Father commands him to speak. Now, what is it that the Father commanded Jesus to speak? Well, he reveals it in Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. That is, by fulfilling them, Jesus came to cause God's will, as made known in the law, to be obeyed as it should be, and God's promises given through the prophets to receive fulfillment. And then beginning in Matthew 5.21, Jesus did what? He began teaching the law, explaining its true meaning, and applying it into the lives of his disciples. Now as he teaches the law, Jesus makes three statements about the kingdom citizens, you and me, about our relationship to God's law. He says in Matthew 5.19-20, Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You see here first, any kingdom citizen who disregards even the smallest command of God's law and teaches others to do the same will suffer the loss of rank in God's kingdom. Does that describe you? Are you someone who has disregarded the smallest of God's commands and taught others to do the same? You're going to suffer the loss of rank. Now, by the way, a loss of rank is an act of grace and mercy. God could have declared you unsaved. Second, any kingdom citizen who obeys God's law and teaches others to do the same will be rewarded with a greater rank in God's kingdom. Now, hopefully that describes you. Third, in order to enter God's kingdom, a kingdom citizen's obedience to the law must surpass that of the Pharisees. And what does that mean? Listen, the Pharisees' obedience to God's law, i.e. righteousness, was merely outward ritualism with no inward reality. That is, they simply were going through the motions. 
To onlookers, they appeared to conform to God's law. However, their hearts were not regenerated. Their minds were consumed by all kinds of sin, such as lust and unjust anger and hatred. The obedience to the law by genuine discipleships, by kingdom citizens, is not only seen by others, but it's seen by God who sees the heart. As Yahweh said to Samuel, God sees not as man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7. In other words, because they are regenerated, their heart obedience to God's law begins internally. The thoughts, the intents of their heart conform to God's law. And furthermore, that internal conformity becomes an outward reality of obedience. So then, the words Jesus speaks, or the message he declares, is the revelation of God's law. He expounds God's law, explains God's law, and engages God's law. And here in Matthew 7, 24 to 27, Jesus declares that some hear God's law with the intent to obey, and others hear with no intention to obey. Now, his statement here is an allusion to a debate amongst the Jewish sages of his day. And the debate centered on which was more important, knowing the law or doing the law. Now, the futility of such a debate is demonstrated when you consider that obeying the law is predicated upon knowing the law. You can't obey what you do not know. And as Jesus will explain, both knowing and doing are equally important. Indeed, those who hear or know the law but do not obey will face judgment. Jesus goes on to contrast these two types of hearers to two builders. Each are building a house which represents their religious life. The difference is one builds on a foundation of rock and the other on sand. Now contextually the foundation here is not Jesus but what he taught, God's law. The one who hears and heeds God's law is compared to a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The one who hears but does not heed God's law is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Luke records the same illustration of the wise and foolish builders in his gospel record. He writes in Luke 6, 48-49, that the wise man dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock, whereas the foolish man built a house on the ground without any foundation. Now the verb dug up is two Greek verbs, skato and bethuno and can be rendered as dig down and go deep. You see, the wise builder did not just build on a firm foundation. He first dug down and went deep. And so those who hear and heed God's law must dig deep. That is, we must exegete God's word and not eisegete it. Now what is exegesis and eisegesis? Exegesis is an interpretation of the scripture that comes from careful examination and an analyzation of the text. Eisegesis is the insertion of your perspective and bias on the text. I'll put it another way. Exegesis excavates or digs deep into the text, whereas eisegesis skates along the surface of the text. You see, the wise builder exegetes God's law. He digs deep into what it means and then obeys it. Whereas the foolish builder eisegetes God's law. Instead of digging into what it means, he's content to stay on the surface and interpret God's law according to his preconceived ideas and biases. 
Friends, interpreting God's law according to your preconceived idea is exactly what the Pharisees were guilty of doing. Is that what you're doing? Do you interpret the scriptures by digging deep into them, by analyzing them and examining them? Or are you taking your preconceived ideas and biases and reading them into the text and interpreting the text that way? If that's you, if that describes you, you, my friend, are a Pharisee and you need to repent. Now, to the casual observer, both houses look similar. Again, Jesus is speaking of people who have confessed Jesus as Lord. On the surface, all the confessions are the same. They all claim to read the Bible. They all claim to pray. They all claim to attend church. Nonetheless, while many profess Jesus as Lord, not all possess him as Lord. You see, it's only upon examining the foundation or lack thereof that the difference between the houses can be seen. Of those who confess Jesus as Lord, some hear and heed his law, and others are disobedient. Because the foundation is always built below the surface, the casual observer cannot ascertain the difference between the two confessions. It's only when the storm batters the houses that the difference will be seen. Accordingly, Jesus says, The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. However, for the house built upon the sand, the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Now, Jesus uses the imagery of a storm to depict a day of future divine judgment. Proverbs 10.25 states, When the whirlwind passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous has an everlasting foundation. Proverbs 12.7 states, The wicked are overthrown and no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. Friends, lives lived in submission to Jesus' lordship, testified by their obedience to God's law, will survive intact on the day of judgment. However, those who profess Jesus as Lord, but live a life of disobedience to God's law will be destroyed. That is, they will be cast into the lake of fire. Indeed, in Ezekiel 33:32, the prophet marked out those doomed to this to judgment when he said, They hear your words, but they do not practice them. Which one are you? Which house are you? Are you built on a foundation, on a rock, or are you built on sand? Are you living in obedience to God's law or disobedience? Make no mistake. Your disobedience or your obedience is a testimony to the genuineness of your faith. Now, the house whose foundation is built upon a rock will survive in the day of judgment. If the foundation is God's law, who or what is the rock? Moses declared in Deuteronomy 32 verse 4, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. As Hannah prayed to Yahweh in 1 Samuel 2, 2, she cried, There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. After being delivered from the hands of Saul, David himself declared in Psalm 18, 2, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. Now, in what ways is Yahweh the rock? Rocks are a picture of stability and security. In the ancient Near East, builders would lay a home's foundation on rock because of its stability. And like a rock, God is immovable 
or stable. And as such, we can build our lives on him. As well, throughout the biblical lands, the landscape was dotted with various rocky formations and crevices. These rocky formations and crevices provided safety from the elements and security from one's enemies. And as such, these rocks were a source of hope. And like a rock, God is a place of safety, security, and a source of hope. The houses that survive the storm are those whose foundation is built upon the rock. Now to review, God is the rock, the foundation is his law. The only confessions of Jesus' lordship that are genuine are those built on the foundation of God's law and God himself. The evidence of which is demonstrated by not, by not only hearing, but obeying God's law. Now presently there's a false doctrine of assurance being taught in churches. Preachers falsely assure people that all they need to do is profess Jesus and be saved is to walk an aisle, raise a hand, or say a prayer. And unfortunately for them, the Bible never teaches such things as the measure of assurance for salvation. Make no doubt, my friends, the biblical doctrine of assurance teaches that one can be assured of their salvation's genuineness if they're obedient to God's law. James challenges believers to prove themselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude, deceive themselves. James 1.22 Again, many are self-deceived, perhaps even you. You've believed yourself to be saved because you profess Jesus as Lord or because you heard his word taught. That's why James continues in verse 25 of James 1. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Paul states in Romans 2.13, It is not the hearers of the law who are justified before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Of course, I need to stress here two things about obedience to God's law. First, obedience is not merely outward conformity, but it's an inward reality. That is, one obeys because they have an inward desire to please God. I pray that you have that desire. Furthermore, their outward obedience will mirror the reality of what is in their heart. What a man sees ought be the same as what God sees. And second, obedience to God's law should not be twisted to mean the entrance to God's kingdom is based solely upon keeping God's law. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. When an individual is saved, Jesus' righteousness is imputed to them. Righteousness is obedience to God's law. Ergo, when one is saved, they are given the ability to obey God's law. In other words, those who are genuinely saved, if you're genuinely saved, you will express your faith in the Lord Jesus through your obedience to the Lord Jesus. James 2, 17 and 20 says, Faith, if it has not works, is dead, and faith without works is useless. Faith without obedience is worthless because it's just an empty confession. Remember the words of 1 John 2, 4. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. I'm brokenhearted to know that there are many who are self-deceived. Many who acknowledge Jesus' deity, who know the scriptures, and even engage in lip service to him. Perhaps that's even some of you. You preach and you speak of purification and phenomena. But you are only hearers of the word and not doers. Listen, my friends, you can acknowledge Jesus' lordship, but that is insufficient 
for entering God's kingdom if it's not enjoined with doing the Father's will, i.e. obeying his commands. Doing the Father's will without acknowledging Jesus' lordship is insufficient for entrance in God's kingdom because lip service is insufficient if it's not accompanied by service of life. Ergo, there is no benefit to acknowledging Jesus' lordship, no benefit to knowing God's law, no benefit to even speaking on God's behalf if you will not act upon what you know by obeying God's law. Salvation comes to all who repent of their sin and believe the gospel. The result of salvation is an acknowledgement of his lordship and obedience to his command. Genuine kingdom citizens are marked by active obedience to King Jesus. They obey what they have heard from God's word, and their confession of his lordship is proven genuineness by their obedience to God's word. What does your obedience or disobedience say about you? And what will it say in the day of judgment? Let's pray. Father, we approach you through your son, Jesus, the Messiah, the one greater than Moses. Moses was a servant in your house, yet Jesus is the son of your house. Moses gave us your law, but Jesus is our lawgiver. As your children, we seek to please you and submit to your son's lordship. We desire to do your will and follow your laws. And we thank you that you have blessed us by writing the law upon our hearts and by gifting us with the Holy Spirit so that we may obey your laws. Father God, we confess there are times when we disobey. There are times when we have ignored your law and even taught others to do the same. So Father, forgive us. May we be hearers and doers of your word. Forgive us of those times, Lord, when we go through the motions, when our obedience is merely outward ritual. Father, I pray that when the day of judgment comes, that we will be found to have a firm foundation built upon the rock. Keep us firmly grounded in your law, firmly grounded upon your character. You are the source of our stability and our security, and to that we give praise and glory to you and say, Amen.